Tyler, it's that time of the year again where things get spooky. So I have a question for you. Great. Shoot. Okay. Do you like haunted houses? Ooh. You know what? I actually really do like haunted houses. I like more to be involved in like building them mm -hmm. and scaring people. But I also like to go to them, but I don't go very often because my three kids absolutely hate even the idea of haunted houses. <laughs> yeah, me too. I am, well, I'm such a softie. Like I can't really watch horror movies because they like freak me out way too much. I have nightmares forever. Haunted houses, like that whole jump scare thing, they just kind of terrify me. But there is somebody in my life who absolutely loves all things horror. And that is my sister, Darian Goldenstall. In fact, yes. <laughs> so we're going to get another story from Darian today. And we just hosted a baby shower for her. And one of the games we played was somebody clipped out scenes from horror movies and scenes where women are giving birth. And we all had to guess whether the scene, uh, so like a close up of a woman's face, if she was in a horror movie or if she was giving birth, which I got to say, like sort of similar. Yeah. It was actually incredibly difficult to guess which is which. And this was like Darian's absolute perfect game because it brought together birth and horror. I love Darian episodes. She always brings the creepiest, unsettling stories from history. And so I'm excited for this episode. Oh, she always brings the creep factor. And today it's an episode where we bring together ideas about haunted houses and medical history. So it's going to be a good one. So get ready for this very spooky episode. Spooky. Spooky. Welcome to this episode of Bioethics for the People, a podcast where we discuss bioethics and all the complex questions related to medicine, health, and society. I'm joined by my co-host, clinical ethicist extraordinaire, sometimes lawyer, and all-around boss at Western Michigan, Tyler Gibb. And she is the birther of babies, the birther of books, the Baylor bear, the bell of bioethics, Dr. Devin Stahl. Welcome to another special Halloween episode of Bioethics for the People featuring Dr. Darian Goldenstall, who is not only a medical humanist, medical humanist, is that a thing? That's a, but also <laughs> a printmaker, a bookmaker, and a maker of spooky tales. Ooh, spooky. Spooky. I'm glad to be back. As you all know, or to introduce myself a little bit more to your new listeners that are subscribing all the time, seems like y'all are getting very popular. Uh, I am sister to Devin. I am Darian. And uh, as Tyler said, my background is in printmaking and bookmaking and medical humanities. And I have found in my research often into printmaking that this is really the medium of choice when it has come to capturing and disseminating medical knowledge for centuries. And oftentimes these beautiful tomes of medical knowledge are seen as building blocks to contemporary medicine. And then other times these prints capture uh, some other kinds of 
uh, potentially controversial ethical conundrums in the history of medicine that might never be repeated today. And those are the ones that I like to pick up on for these Halloween specials. Ooh, that was my spooky voice. <laughs> I'm scared. <laughs> uh, so Devin and Tyler, I am back because it is spooky season to regale you with a tale from the crossroads of medicine, art, and in this case, a hefty dose of religion from history, along with some potentially contemporary lineages uh, where we could recognize some of these older traditions even today. Our first two Halloween specials together have tackled issues surrounding binding books in human flesh or using fetal skeletons within anatomy sculptures. And as always, for this year's story, I want to get your impressions of uh, the ethics and legality surrounding the event that I am about to tell you all about from your very expert perspectives in medicine, law, and religion. Dun, dun, dun. I'm intrigued. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> you know, you know what would be funny, Devin, is if we tried to speak from the other person's expertise. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Listen, but not this time. <laughs> but let's not do that. There's a lot of specific questions for Devin about religion. I know that I would love to pose to you, Tyler, for <laughs> yes. you to explain. I would be particularly poor at responding to those in any type of factual way. So we'll just leave it to the experts then. To set the scene for us, I am going to take us all the way back to 1831 in Italy on All Souls Day, which is held every year on November 2nd. So very close to Halloween. As is tradition for this Roman Catholic holiday, we are making our way through the city to our local cemetery on the grounds of the Santo Spirito Hospital, located right along the Tiber River in Rome, so that we may pray for the suffering souls buried there who are believed to be trapped in purgatory. And Devin, here is my first question to you. Would you mind giving us a little rundown of purgatory and why there would be a whole holiday set aside in Roman Catholicism devoted to praying for the souls trapped there? <laughs> well, I love this question because I am not Roman Catholic and don't totally understand purgatory. So I'm glad you introduced me as the expert on this topic, <laughs> of which I don't know that much about. So sorry, poor listener, if I bungle this. So what I know about purgatory, okay. Um, I know that most Protestants don't believe in purgatory because of the ways it's been associated with indulgences in the Catholic Church. Okay, which uh, I don't want to go into. That's a whole- The story has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with that. So purgatory is, I believe it has roots in the early church, but is more of a, it was solidified as a sort of doctrine of the Catholic church in the medieval era. And the idea is that there is a place in which you got to send people. So like some people are wonderful and maybe they go straight to heaven and some people are terrible and maybe they go straight to hell. But like most people might be somewhere in the middle, like a little bit good and a little bit bad. And in order to get into heaven, they need to spend a little bit of time being purged 
of their sins. Ooh, I bet that's where the root of the word comes. That's just now occurring to me. You got to purge yourself of those like sins so that you are worthy of getting into heaven. And there's like some biblical scripture about this that seems to imply like that people that you might pray for the dead. And like, why would you pray for the dead if they already went to heaven or hell? So maybe there's like a liminal space in between. Um, so, and it kind of makes sense, right? Like what happens to those people? Like if there is some time between like now and the last judgment, maybe there's like a space where they go to wait for that. Uh, I don't know. Okay, again, not my tradition. I think that's some of the idea of purgatory. But that sounds is it right. Different, is it different than limbo? So limbo, I think, is where babies go who haven't like actually committed sins yet. And the Catholic Church doesn't believe in limbo anymore. But there was, I think, again, in this sort of same era of like, okay, but what about babies who haven't actually sinned yet and they die, but they haven't been baptized yet? Where do they go? And they go to this other place called limbo. But I don't think anyone believes in limbo anymore. Okay, and again, I'm sorry if I totally bungled that. So you can write to us at uh, Bioethics for the People and tell me if I got any of that wrong. That I mean, that sounds good. <laughs> From my reason, my sounds, light, my yeah, light uh, research into sounds, this topic. <laughs> it sounds good enough. <laughs> and that's what we're going for on Bioethics for the People is good enough. A good little enough. bit good, a little bit bad. Ooh, good tie-in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... My understanding, uh, doing some research for this story, exactly how you how you said, after you die, because you're not totally purified of your sins, you got to hang out in this in-between space. And it looks a lot like our depictions of hell. Like these people look like they're suffering, they're on fire, they're being cleansed of their sins before they're then worthy enough to go into heaven. And this stay can be incredibly long, like centuries long of being kind of burned alive, um, being cleansed of your sins before you can totally ascend. So it's really important then uh, you can help your loved ones pass through purgatory by praying for them and giving them some of your, you know, good energy from here on earth. So that's what this holiday is all about, All Souls Day. You go to your local cemetery and you pray for your loved ones who have passed away or whoever else is buried there so that they may lessen their time in purgatory and make it to heaven. And I'm sure that there are a lot of cemeteries in Rome that we could have gone to on this day in 1831, uh, but there is a huge crowd funneling into one particular cemetery and it happens to be on the hospital grounds uh because there there's a special event taking place here it is a theatrical display uh it's meant to get everybody into the intense praying mood mm, sounds fun yeah uh i'm there this is the event <laughs> and luckily for us there were uh artists on site who were able to capture this scene this theatrical display on the cemetery of the hospital and I would love for Tyler, actually, to open up this print that was first engraved by Antoine Jean-Baptiste Thomas and then recaptured by Francois Alexandre Villain. 
uh, that depicts exactly what this stage looked like. So open up this image for us and go ahead and describe what we are seeing here in this print. All right, so I see, looks like a long banquet table inside of like a courtyard, possibly. Uh, lots of people standing around on the far side of the table. And then kind of front and center is a, looks like a, I don't know, like a, almost like a tomb, a rectangular stone that has somebody depicted as burning, looking up into the sky. And there's an angel on a stick <laughs> with, <laughs> with wings and a trumpet. And looks like they're giving the, giving the bird to some people who have been tortured maybe. <laughs> and it says anime, anime del purgatory on a box. And what's Look on the ground here? Uh, looks like people have been tortured, but looks like they're also coming out of like, I don't know, some sort of entrances from the ground with looks like stone coverings. I don't know. Kind of hard to tell what's going on. Looks like there's some people exchanging money in the back. Money changers, perhaps. Thank you, Tyler. Uh, Devin, do you have anything to add to that description? Uh, no, it's very like pastel. It's very like both the the angel is kind of beautiful, but the people on the ground who are like kind of laying and look maybe dead, um, they're not so beautiful looking. Is it a gravestone? This guy who's like on fire? I yeah, I'm not. A, I'm not. I'm also not 100 percent sure what's going on here. So I'm gonna need the yes. artist to explain. I'll it. take it from here. Definitely, here. definitely dead people. Definitely an angel. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. So this is a courtyard of the hospital. Uh, so those aren't banquet tables that you're seeing in the background, but more of a just a barrier. So we're as spectators meant to kind of walk around the perimeter of this courtyard set apart from the scene happening in the center. And these are trap doors uh, that are on the hospital grounds of the courtyard here that have been propped open with these people kind of crawling out of them. They look in distress, they're nude, except for maybe like a cloth hanging over their pelvises. And they're reaching towards this central angel figure who's pointing up to the heavens, looking down below and trumpeting this very long horn. And I think those people in the background exchanging coins is probably someone collecting donations uh, so spectators might be giving some coins to help fund this annual display. And I'm being kind of careful about the language I'm using here. I'm calling it a display uh, because I don't think that we could call it a play or a skit or a theater uh, because there's no real actors here. It's a static scene that visitors are walking around and this angel in the center is actually made out of wax. So the Italians are getting really good at full-size wax figures uh, during this time period. So that stick that's kind of holding it up is just to prop up this probably super heavy wax angel in the center of the scene. But uh, those other people in the scene- are... Oh no, Darian, don't say it. <laughs> I already know it's coming. They're not wax, are they? They're oh, not no. wax. No. Those are actual human corpses. No. That have been propped up 
coming out of these trap doors, which are actually the trap doors of the mass graves that are on the grounds of the hospital. No. Ugh. Yeah. So <laughs> that might also explain why the visitors are kept at such a far distance. Um, you know, behind the short barricade, not only to keep the scene pristine and give everyone a chance to look at its entirety without being blocked by a bunch of people milling around, but also probably to save them from what must have been the horrific stench of the open trapdoors on these 24 mass graves on the hospital grounds. That's gross. <laughs> your, your faces are awful. So now that you know, and anyone who visited this scene would have also known that these were actual human corpses, uh, does it change the meaning of this scene or the gravity of this scene for you now with this new knowledge? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm possibly more confused about what's going on because there are corpses involved. Uh, is the idea, Darian, that, like, these people themselves could be in purgatory? And then, like, I mean, it does kind of, for me, really heighten the purgatory element. Because these are, like, actual corpses. And if you believe in purgatory, like, these people who are the corpses could be themselves in purgatory. So it, like, heightens the religiosity of it in some way. But it also makes it so gross. <laughs> the exact point Devin that if you see actual corpses you are being confronted with the corpses of the recently deceased who you could rightly assume would still be in purgatory you are potentially more likely to pray even harder uh, spend more time praying on this holiday to help relieve their suffering within purgatory and usher their way through the golden gates this might be hopeful for you as the spectator that, you know, on this yearly tradition that people would be praying for you. So you want to spend a lot of time today praying for them. So I see a lot of confusion still on your face, Tyler, and I would like to back up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, no, that, if only just, we could that, do that. <laughs> yeah, that's just my face. <laughs> Nevertheless, I'm going to back up a little bit and give some more context to this scene, why this is happening, what is happening here. Uh, what you are witnessing is what is called a sacred representation, and it is an annual tradition for All Souls Day in Italy during this time period, where the freshest of corpses would be dressed up and essentially used as props to depict various scenes from the Bible. Sacred representations began around the mid-1700s by members of a particular um, Catholic fraternity called the Confraternity of Prayer and Death. Cool name. Uh, which was... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think we have one of those at our school, too. <laughs> so this was a brotherhood of Catholic laymen uh, operating between 1552 and almost all the way up to 1900 who saw it as their sacred mission to collect the dead from the Italian countryside, carry their bodies, sometimes for days. Nope, that's that... too long. It's, that's too long to carry the bodies. 
<laughs> for days, I said. Uh, either back all the way to Rome, or at least to the nearest consecrated cemetery that would accept them. They would then inter these bodies, bury them, and then spend some time praying for their souls. Most of their charges would be migrant workers, so that's why they didn't have anyone else to really look after their corpses, who were felled in the field by malaria or other communicable diseases very far away from home. Devin, this is my next question for you as our resident Roman Catholic expert. <laughs> Please don't say that. <laughs> Why would it have been such a big deal? Like, this is a very arduous job that this confraternity took very seriously of gathering the people who had died uh, so that their bodies wouldn't be left to the elements. They had no one to look after them, so they took on that duty for themselves. Why was it such a big deal to have someone look up, look after your corpse? Uh, okay, so I've heard this term before, Christian burial. We have to give them a Christian burial, which I think has something to do with like God being able to find you at the last judgment and like allow your body to ascend into heaven. I'm not sure why God otherwise couldn't find you. I thought God was like omniscient, but either way. There's something about like, it's both respect for the corpse to bury them. And then there's, that's like a place that people can come visit and pray for you. And then God can find you there later when, when God returns. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's, that sounds right from my very, you know, shallow research on this topic. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of what's being shown here in the scene of the last judgment, like you mentioned. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the last judgment? Is it, do you see the connection between that, that biblical story and what you're seeing in this image, this print? Yeah. So the last judgment is the day in which, so Christ returns to earth to like, well, render his last judgment on us. And so then we have like, it's final. You go to, you, you participate in the new earth, the new heaven and the new earth, or you are damned to hell forever if you believe such things uh but that's like the the day when christ returns and some people believe there's like some scripture that says maybe people rise up and you know meet god in heaven and other people are sort of pulled down to hell by demons sort of depending on the century you live in and what kind of christian you are would they have been crawling out of their graves uh sure yeah i mean that's some of the art right that's what they're, that's what this art would suggest. <laughs> so I, I think what the confraternity members are doing is pretty cool. Um, you know, if they're taking this very seriously and, and doing this work that is really, as Devin said, gross uh, and arduous. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I respect it. But also cool. Like, so Darian Goldenstall thinks it's cool to collect corpses. So just, I just want that to be like the soundbite of today's episode. <laughs> it's the tagline. <laughs> uh, so I would say it was typical for these uh, confraternity members to mostly operate within the countryside, but they also operated within the cityscape. They would go to the hospitals every night and perform the same service, carrying out the recently dead to the cemeteries located on the grounds of the hospital. 
And Devin and Tyler, at this, this kind of stood out to me. We don't typically see cemeteries at hospitals anymore. Would you say that's accurate? I mean, what what do we do with the recently deceased today at hospitals? Well, they go to the the morgue, and the morgue has maybe a bunch of different names that don't evoke such creepy histories. Um, but I think that they go. Oh yeah, to nothing a morgue. creepy about a morgue. <laughs> yeah, they they go to the morgue and then they become the property of, I guess, like the funeral home directors and stuff. I think that I think that's the process. It, you know, if you die in the hospital, you go to the morgue where there's some sort of uh, process, and then you're encouraged to uh, connect with a funeral home director of some sort. And then they are the ones who remove the the bodies from the hospital, right? The uh, the one of the hospitals that we have here in our community is an old Catholic hospital. It's been remodeled and updated and stuff, but it does have a cemetery on like an adjacent piece of property. It's a it's the, they also have a connection with some uh, like houses for nuns and and priests and stuff kind of an, a retirement home for uh folks but i think that's because it was originally part of the sisters of i can't remember saint francis or saint mary or something it's some sort of clerical order that there's a connection to but there's a a cemetery that's close by my guess is i mean there's probably a lot of reasons not to do that anymore with like hygiene and space but uh, my guess is like hospitals don't want to put cemeteries right next door because it reminds people of death and hospitals want to be seen as places that save people's lives and not places that allow people to die. Yeah. And so you want to get the cemetery way far away from the hospital. It's kind of a That's... bad advertisement yeah. for your services. Yeah. Bad, <laughs> bad PR. <laughs> yeah. And I always like to remind us, maybe at this point in the stories, that sentiments around death were really different in the 1800s than they are today. Death was more of an integrated part of everyday life. Dying rituals would typically occur in the home. That is in part due to the fact that public hospitals were horrific places to be ill. Uh, hopefully you had family to take care of you in the home and you could call upon a healer or doctor to visit you in the home. And hospitals were really reserved for those who had nowhere else to go, the extremely poor and sick. And without, Devin, as you mentioned, without modern ideas of germ theory and hygiene practices, hospitals were really hotbeds for disease and infection and probably were where people would go to die instead of getting better. Bummer. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I would imagine the confraternity brothers had a lot of corpses to work with come November 2nd on All Souls Day for their sacred representations. And these scenes would happen all over Italy, not just at this particular hospital in Rome. And they would take place either outdoors in the cemetery or in underground crypts, uh, which really remind me kind of like of haunted houses that we might see today, where you go in, go inside of a space and, and look at these scary displays. Scary to us today, probably 
was quite sacred to the people then. Something can be scary and sacred. That's the best kind of sacred. Mm. It's like kind of kind of terrifying. Get on your toes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but by the late 1800s, these sacred representations were really starting to get phased out of uh, of all, an All Souls Day tradition, but not really because it was seen as unethical to cart out and pose dead bodies but more so because of our greater understandings of how diseases were spread. The cemeteries were moved off of the hospital grounds and there were bans in place uh, on interring people in spaces like convents or crypts within the city limits where they might come into contact with the public or sewage systems. And this was for the sake of our new conceptions of public health. Probably a good move rights for the sake of public health and maybe even medical ethics. But I don't know, I, I wanted your perspective on this. Were there, are there consequences for moving death kind of away from the public eye? Nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, of course. Yeah. So I think one of the big things that changed, at least in, in modern modern society that we have lost touch with the process of dying i think to a to a great degree and death is now seen as something that is um like a failure death is something to be avoided at all costs death is something ironically that is seen as unnatural and so when people particularly when they have loved ones who are at the end of life, it's really disconcerting and disorienting to see what death looks like. But in previous generations, people dying at home and there being dead bodies at home was not unusual, right? So the idea of a parlor in a lot of kind of traditional architecture that was built on the front of the house. So when family members die, they can be displayed and, and people can come and pay their last respects there. So it, I think there there have been a lot of kind of unintended consequences to not being a part of the dying process, uh, kind of medicalizing it and trying to sterilize that whole process. Huh. And, and I said, think Tyler. to our, our contemporary sensibilities, we can say that these sacred representations probably shouldn't be, I don't know, repeated today. Uh, there's just a minefield of consent issues. I doubt anyone was, you know, getting these people's consent about being a part of the annual display uh, before they passed away. And what might family members think if they saw their loved ones being a part of these displays. But I, I kind of want to push back on it a little bit because I might propose that potentially the people whose corpses were used in these sacred representations might not have had a huge problem with it. It drew in tons of visitors to pray for your soul, which as we explained earlier, was a hugely important act to hasten your time in purgatory. And you might also be comforted to know that your body would be used in this kind of grander purpose to spread the good word to, to the masses in a format that was accessible. Uh, it didn't require intense study or even literacy. 
Passersby could very viscerally witness the stories of the Bible and learn about their moral purpose. Uh, but of course, it's really hard to know today if they would have been totally chill with their corpses being used as props. <laughs> that was a, was that a pun? Because they were probably like rancid and hot. They wouldn't have, I, they, they should have, <laughs> never mind, scratch that. No, keep, Cameron, get that. Keep torturing that. Get, edit that part out. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, Darian, you've totally convinced me. I think we should resurrect. That is a pun. It's a good one, right? Uh, we should resurrect these scenes, get all the corpses, put them out, take them straight from the body farm to the the sacred imaging, and uh, we'll all pray for them. No problems here. I love it. No legal issues and here. And Tyler's nodding his head that he's like totally into it too. No, I don't see any. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Uh, yeah, I don't think we could do this today. But I have picked out a few select ways that sacred representations are kind of still around today. Uh, oh. We actually see sacred representations every single year during a different holiday. Can you guess what sacred representation I might be referring to, Devin or Tyler? St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> Thanksgiving. Groundhog's Day. Mother's Day. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. National oh. Daughter's Day. Oh, uh, National Wine Day. That just happened. Y'all, it's Christmas. Think uh, baby oh, right. Jesus Christmas. in the manger. You people go oh, to right, see right, the right. annual yeah. display and maybe even it's in a petting zoo so you get to see some live animals roaming around those are the best ones Agreed. a distinct and lack no one's of dead, corpses which i i am uh, for in the modern day sacred representation <laughs> of baby jesus um but there's there's other ways that these kind of theatrical um, traditions could be seen today, especially around spooky season, Halloween. Uh, and this is called Hell Houses. Devin and Tyler, have you heard of Hell Houses? I feel like oh, there's a movie no. in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> it does sound like a movie. This, Darian, is this, um, so I, I have a friend who grew up in a church that would on halloween do like sort of like haunted houses but they were about like people who had died and not like been right with jesus and at the end of the like haunted house they'd like force you to like pray and do an altar call and try to convert you is that what you're talking about that is what i'm talking about oh yes <laughs> so it's like a haunted house but like proselytizing yep very much so that's creepy on a couple of different <laughs> Let me tell you a little bit more about them so that you can get creeped out even more. Uh, these, yes, these are typically funded by evangelical churches and run by youth ministers and youth groups as a riff on haunted houses. But instead of scaring people with monsters or chainsaw wielding axe murderers, uh, other supernatural beings, Hell houses act out real world scenarios of sinful acts that are meant to demonstrate how the devil is working within our society and tempting us into damnation. 
So I, I looked up a few of these videos of these hell houses and think like sprawled out heroin users and then walking into another room to see reenactments of like school shootings. No. Yeah. Oh. And like hyper realistic, um, hyper realistically completing suicides, oh. sex trafficking skits. I mean, the absolute worst things ever are made very realistic and put on display as like an immersive interactive theater. No, that's bad. That seems bad. And this is for children? Youth. Uh, there's Youth, okay. Youth. The youths. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Hopefully not children, but definitely for the youths. Like teenagers, tweens? Yeah, okay. teens. Teens, okay. Oh, it's fine then. That's super, super creepy. Super creepy, yeah. It's it's a lot. Uh, and the goal here is kind of the same as the sacred representations. They are meant to shock the public into staying on the path of morality, to teach you about the teachings of the Bible. Um, but this is certainly a very fire and brimstone public service, if you will, way to scare people into staying on the righteous path. I, 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 I I'm not for it. it. I don't love it. I don't love it. <laughs> yeah, after watching some of these videos, I mean, they are just so extreme and so violent and traumatizing. Like if you thought these sacred representations were extreme, like go to a hell house in Texas. <laughs> um, but on the other White hand, Texas. They're really popular in Texas. Of course they are. <laughs> Everything's bigger in Texas. Yeah. Everything's bigger and scarier in Texas. <laughs> and I, I kind of wanted your opinion here. What is more extreme, in your opinion? Using actual corpses for your sacred representations of, of biblical scenes? Or using live actors for, like, really really traumatizing skits they both seem r really bad um but maybe the latter i mean like there's something about scaring like purposely scaring children that is upsetting in a on a different register <laughs> i don't know what do you think tyler yeah i think that doing i don't know from what, the, what you described the um like the displays like you, you walk up and you see the display and it prompts you to pray or whatever it is. But if you're walking through like a, a haunted house type of situation and there's like room after room of all of these like horrific things and ways in which people die and suffer, that seems more traumatizing. Particularly if there's some sort of like evangelical intent behind it to get you to pray or convert to something. I don't know. I think I would avoid both of them. <laughs> yep. I'm doing something else that day. But, you know, you might have absent-mindedly or uh, you didn't quite know if you've ever been to a haunted house. I feel like these stories are popping up yearly where your local haunted house suddenly discovers that they've been using real human skeletons in their displays for like decades. Mm -hmm. uh, that maybe were donated from the local high school science department and never really looked at too critically before have you come across these stories 
I haven't, but I totally love that idea. Oops, real skeleton. Yeah, these right. oops, real skeletons happen all the time. I, I like Googled this and there were so many local news stories of this exact situation happening. My dad has a human, like a real skull on his like bookshelf. Wait it, wait it out your dad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's just always been there. And I think I need to ask some questions about that. <laughs> I don't think it's illegal to own to like possess human remains though, right? If they're old enough, right? Isn't that the case, Darian? It really depends where you live. Uh, and oh. if you're trying to resell it, then oh. you might run into a lot of issues. Interesting. It's probably different in Texas too, right, Devin? Oh yeah, there's no problem with it in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting conundrum because you probably would never have known that the skeleton was an actual human being and does it change your perception of the haunted house or the scene that you're looking at knowing that it's a real skeleton? Or has it been so removed from the person at that point where it's like you're easy it's easier for you to just see it as a prop uh what what's the difference here between like these skeletons and then seeing real human corpses in a sacred representation it's got to be the flesh there's something about like the putrefaction of flesh that seems more visceral to me than a skeleton yeah if there's like parts of yeah, the flesh like corroding and falling off. I just, maybe it's because I'm particularly sensitive to smells, but I can't imagine what this smells like. Like walking into this house or this courtyard where there's this happening. That's fair. <laughs> that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, and there's, there's actually one last contemporary, I would say, lineage of a sacred representation that we could still see today um and that is extreme embalming mm. have either of you heard of this kind of becoming more and more popular practice you mean like plastination or something different something different oh is it extreme embalming embalming so is it but it's it's different than like cryopreservation definitely Huh. Well, apparently the answer to you is no. We have not heard of no. that. That's fine. Um, so I, I'm picking up on this idea that there's something a lot more realistic about just seeing the whole person as opposed to just the bones. Um, so there's this mm -hmm. practice called extreme embalming. And we don't have enough time to really get into it, though maybe this will be the topic for next year if, if we want to pick back up on this thread. But as the name suggests, and if if you get invited back, I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very presumptuous. <laughs> if I'm given the invitation, maybe we can pick up on this thread. Uh, but a person who has been recently deceased can be heavily embalmed so that you know there's no putrefaction. Um, they're not smelling or going through you know, the, the decomposition process. And they are then posed theatrically within a set scene, kind of a lot like a sacred representation, only instead of reenacting a scene from the Bible, they're kind of placed within a scene uh, of what they love doing most in life. 
So family members would bring, mm. you know, card games or motorcycles or microphones, kind of these props to adorn their loved one who is dressed and posed within this theatrical kind of scene, maybe in the home, uh, maybe at the... Darian's struggling to figure out any other place a person might want to be <laughs> besides their home. The, the, what's it? The, the place. The place? The church? Not the ch like the viewing space. What are they called? The parlor. The parlor. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the bar. <laughs> the, Can you imagine somebody the getting theater. like this extreme embalming, and they're they just get like set at the end of like their local dive bar with a, like a, a a pint in their hand? <laughs> I am That's suggesting awesome. that this is exactly what happens. Uh, so there actually is a case study, oh, and again, we don't have time to go into it, but a, a rapper in Maryland named Nugu was. That his family members rented out an entire nightclub and put him on the stage to have his last concert and it was very well attended there was like pyrotechnics it seemed like a really wonderful way to celebrate his life i'm gonna put that out there i i actually Oof. don't have a big problem with this at all i i think there's something kind of interesting and lovely about sending off your loved one in a display of what they loved doing in life instead of just kind of laying down in a coffin in a, in a death pose. But laying down in coffins is my favorite thing to do in life. <laughs> yeah. That's what you're going to get, Devin. <laughs> I'm changing my will immediately. Yeah. Devin's going to be placinated as taking a nap. <laughs> <laughs> it is one of my favorite things to do. I'm not going to lie. Well, yeah. Gross, yep. Darian. I mean, cool. I mean, I don't know. I have a lot of feelings. I guess I have to ruminate. Yeah. What What do they do the next day, though? Then they just put him in the coffin? So there's this one case of a man who really loved motorcycles. And he was extreme embalmed, placed on his motorcycle underneath of like a glass case and paraded around his town uh, on the motorcycle and then buried completely under the ground on his motorcycle. So what I'm saying is, extreme embalming could be seen as a modern day thread, uh, hearkening back all the way to sacred representations of these theatrical displays of corpses that are really controversial for a myriad of complicated reasons. But I think if it's done consensually and respectfully, I, I don't have a huge problem with this practice. Is it lovely? Is it spooky? Is it spooky? Is it spooky? <laughs> uh, well, our listeners can write in and tell us whether it's spooky or not, or whether they want it, and and send us some pics if you're if you and your family are doing this. We want to see it. Sketch out your own death tableau. Ooh, love it. We need some more fan art. I think this podcast needs more fan art. If you were to make a t death tableau for yourself. Darian, what would yours be? Devin said that hers is taking a nap, so. I I am in the art studio at a printing press, like pulling the huge wheel and a print is coming out like halfway. Oh. What's the print of? That seems important. It says, happy Halloween, everybody. <laughs> happy Halloween. <laughs> <laughs>
Thanks for listening to this episode of Bioethics for the People. For more information about today's topics, please visit us at bioethicsforthepeople.com. Special thanks to Darian Goldenstahl for the podcast-related artwork, Christopher Wright for composing and recording the music, and Cameron Swayze for audio engineering support. Thank you.